Well, I'm glad that you've been able to log on and uh, watch our service remotely. And this morning is Easter morning. It is resurrection morning. And he has risen. And this morning we want to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Or excuse me, Mark. And uh, as we begin, I want to start off uh, by talking about something that's unpleasant. Death. Death is a topic that really no one wants to talk about. If you really want to shut down a conversation as fast as possible, bring up death, bring up dying, discuss the end of life, and things tend to get quiet pretty quick. But everyone on earth is bound together by this one thing, death. Every person on earth has experienced some sort of death in their lives. And if you live long enough on this planet, you will know someone that has died. It's a common denominator for every person. Every person on earth has this destiny in mind. It's, it's death. And death has been on my mind this week. I couldn't sleep on Thursday night. I couldn't shake the significance of that evening. Thursday is the day we remember Jesus walking into the garden by himself. And in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, he says the, he went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And James, John, and Peter went with him and Jesus was greatly distressed, Mark says, and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. Uh, the Greek words for deeply distressed actually means astonished. Jesus had been unflappable to this point. And now suddenly he's, he sees something, he feels something deep within his bones, and he realizes something now. It unsettles him. Mark says that he was troubled, which means to be overcome with horror. And what would bring horror to the Son of God? See, something happened in that garden that night. It was shocking, the unshockable Son of God. And I sat up on Thursday evening reflecting again on the fact that something horrific was crashing onto the senses of our Lord while he prayed in the garden that night. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. If you remember in the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. See, Jesus was trembling in the garden, knowing that he was going to die and seeing then that this death would entail that all evil would be poured on himself, our evil. And the sinless Son of God would absorb the full wrath of God and he would die. Have you thought about death at all this week? I have. You probably should think about death more often than you do. Walter Wangren was quoted saying, if the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, it's our fault, not the gospel's. For death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air, and Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, Whereas he can be our necessary ally, immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyed of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. We need to think about death more often. 
And this morning we celebrate Easter because we believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically was resurrected from the dead. We believe it. We don't just think it's a fairy tale. We don't just think it's some sort of analogy. We believe that Jesus Christ was physically and literally murdered, killed, strung up on a cross for all the world to see, and that his lifeless body was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, just like a morning today, he physically resurrected from the grave. We believe that. And we've embraced that. And so we understand there's big implications for this day, Resurrection Day, the day that we should circle on our calendars. It's the day when our world changed. Everything changed for every human that has ever roamed the earth. So this morning, I want to walk through this passage in Mark chapter 15. And I'm going to pause as I walk through each verse. There is no outline. Just follow with me as I walk through it of what happened that day. And I'll have some thoughts as we walk through this. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 and go to the end of the chapter starting in verse 46. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, Jesus, they wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph here is Joseph of Arimathea. He uses the tomb for Jesus' burial. He believes Jesus is dead, along with Nicodemus, other gospel writer says. And he takes Jesus' lifeless body and wraps it in linen. Jesus was dead on Friday. He couldn't do anything for himself. Someone else had to ask for him to be taken down and buried before the sun went down before the Sabbath. And Jesus dies in mid-afternoon, and the Sabbath began at sunset. And the Jewish law permitted no work on the Sabbath, which meant they could not bury the body of Jesus that night or the next day. They had to have it happen right then. And the way that Mark is writing about the burial is significant because he's certifying that Jesus was really dead. In fact, there's a strange redundancy in Mark's account. Three times within a span of just eight verses, Mark records the names of some women who witnessed these events. He says again in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. And he, he brings these names up. They're, they're notable, and we're going to see why. But this is also a remarkable Sabbath. A Sabbath of rest for our Lord. A Sabbath of silence. Matthew Henry writes about verse 1, Never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was, which the first words of this chapter tells us was now past. During all the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to him a Sabbath of rest, but a silent Sabbath. It was to his disciples a melancholy Sabbath, spent in tears and fears. Never were the Sabbath services in the temple such an abomination to God, though they had been so often as they were now when the chief priests who presided at them had hands full of blood, the blood of Christ. And while the Sabbath is over and the first day of the week, it's the first day of a new world. And so the women come. The women come to the tomb. And they're not embalming the body. No, the perfume was there as an act of worship for a decaying corpse. 
And they went to the tomb not because they believed Jesus would be alive, but because they were convinced that he was dead. Verse 2 says, and, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. It was extra early in the morning, before the sun had come up, it was dark outside. Do you remember the last time you were awake before the sun was up? Some of the new parents in our church know what that's like. I remember when we lived in Sweden, it happened every day in, in winter. And I would walk Madeline to school from our home on Runo Bakken and take the one and a half mile path at seven in the morning in pitch black to her school. And you would think it was quiet, but I had an eight-year-old Madeline and it wasn't quiet. But on the way home, after dropping her off at school, it was quiet. And you tend to do a lot of thinking when you walk in the dark. At least I did in those days. And when you're up early in the dark, you tend to think about the prior day, what what happened, what you're feeling. It's like you haven't fully processed all that's transpired. In the darkness of the morning, you can think through what just happened. And the first dark morning after losing someone you desperately loved is very much a contemplative morning. See, darkness can be disorienting. In such deep darkness, you won't see f- forward. And so you don't know where you're going. You have no direction. You can't see yourself even in deep darkness. You don't even know what you look like. You can't tell if anyone's around you, or friend or foe. You are isolated. And physical darkness brings confusion and lostness. It can overwhelm us. It can exhaust us. And I've talked to a few of you on the phone the last few weeks, and to know that this is right where you're at. Some are in overwhelming disorient and darkness, uneasiness, awkwardness, and confusion fills your days. You're not sure where to take your next step. Friends, this is where the women are existing on that Sunday morning. Before the sun had risen, they go to the tomb. Because the one they had followed, the one they were giving their life to, was dead. And it says in verse 3, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Boy, if you're honest with yourself, this is where each of us live day in and day out, isn't it? The crushing pressure of the next thing that needs to be decided. The next decision that needs a solution. And why are they worried about the stone? Because simply they're women and they won't be able to roll it away. And where are the men this early Sunday morning? Well, they're all hiding. John says in his gospel, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And the women head to the tomb and the men are cowering, hiding. Just note that it was the women who kept life going when things went south. And if I've learned anything in the last four weeks of a lockdown, the woman in my life keeps things going when life is all upside down. And they're talking about the stone. And they're, they're talking and thinking not about this is first Easter. They're not celebrating as they walk to this tomb. No, they didn't expect the stone to be gone. They expected the stone to be in front of the tomb and things locked up. And then it says in verse 4, they looked up and they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. They looked up. Why did they look up? Because their eyes were down. And what does it mean that their eyes were down? It means they're grieving. 
And grieving people don't look up. They're always looking down. They're sorrowful. They're mourning. They're hurting. And they're looking down, not up. And when they get there, they're shocked. They're shocked at what they find. The stone was rolled back. See, the stone was there and it was guarded even. And they worried about something that was actually nothing. And some of you this morning are distressed about something in your life that God has already dealt with. But you haven't seen it yet or experienced it. You are worried about something when it's really nothing to God. And how many of you woke up this morning worried about that something? Concerned about how that something's going to play out and work out instead of adoring your God? And I don't ask that to, for you to beat yourself up. Don't do that. Just realize that these women are doing the same thing here. And yet God has grace for them. Your something is not much in the hands of God. Your, your something is really nothing when God is involved. And friends, in the greatness of our troubles, there's often more space for the greater display of the goodness of God. Friends, a great trial in your life may be nothing more than the prelude to a great joy. These women saw how great the stone was that was now moved, but that's not really what astonished them the most. No, that's not what alarmed them. No, it says in verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where he laid him? See, he has risen, Right? He has risen, and the, and the church says, uh, I think that's what I miss most about this morning, is not being able to say that to all of you. You could say it at home, please do. But Jesus has risen. He is not in the tomb. And can you imagine the shocked looks on their faces? What must have been racing through their minds. They came early on Sunday morning to the tomb. They expected the tomb to, to devote their time and their resources to, to care and anoint this dead body. And not just anybody, the body of their Lord, the man they loved, their friend, their leader. And they expected a corpse. Instead, they hear he has risen. He is not here. And they shouldn't be completely surprised. Re repeatedly in this Gospel of Mark, Jesus said to his disciples, I will rise on the third day. He said it in Mark 8. He said it in Mark 9. He said it again in Mark 10. Jesus is saying over and over and over, I will die, but I'll rise again in the third day. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again the third day. I'm going to die, and then rise again the third day. He just repeated it. And yet it's the third day. And where is John and Mark and Peter? They're nowhere to be found. No one was expecting the resurrection. So the resurrection was inconceivable for the first disciples. It's impossible for them to believe as for many today. The Greeks denied any possibility of resurrection. The Jews only believed in a future, future general res resurrection. And instead, it was women that came to observe the empty tomb. And it's interesting, isn't it? Why would Mark, along with other gospel writers, tell us that it was the women? Don't they want some validity to their story? See, 
See, Celsus, a, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was highly antagonistic to Christianity, and he wrote a number of works listing arguments against it, and one argument was against women as the chief witnesses. And he wrote this. I didn't write this, so please don't email me. He says, Christianity can't be true because written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and all know that women are hysterical. And many of his readers agreed with him. And it was a major problem for many. And I'm sure you know Women were marginalized, and their testimony was never given any credence at this time. And so why does Mark go to such lengths to share with us a number of times that it was these women that found the empty tomb? Have you thought about it? I mean, if, if Mark and the other the gospel writers wanted this movement to get off the ground, they would have never written about women into the story. They, they would have never said that the women were the first witnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. And so why did Mark write that these women were first in the tomb? Here's the reason. Because it happened. Shocking, isn't it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all write what really happened. Biblical scholar Richard Bachman says that this is another way Mark is letting us know that he's recording a historical account, not writing legend. The repeated names of the women here are his sources of citations. They're like footnotes, friends. These women must have been alive at the time Mark was writing this, or he wouldn't have cited them repeatedly. And Mark is telling his readers, if you want to check out the validity and the truth of what I'm going to write, go talk to these women. Go ahead, I dare you. They're still alive. And they will agree with everything I've written. And then Paul does it later in 1 Corinthians 15. To, to substantiate the truth of what's happening. And friends, perhaps you've logged on. Perhaps just by accident, or our friend shared this link to, to, to watch our Easter service. And I'm happy you did. You are always welcome to join us. And perhaps in the future, we can meet face to face. And you may be a cynic. You may be a doubter. You may be skeptical of Christianity. And just know you're surrounded by lots of people all around your neighborhood who are skeptics too. And they're skeptics in the Bible. But one thing is true of skeptics. You have this twinge inside of you wanting it to be true. You, you want this to be true. And you're longing for peace for your life and hope for tomorrow and endurance. And Christianity promises to answer your questions. It loves to show you the answers. Because everything here hinges on the resurrection. And so all of the gospel accounts talk about it. And even moving into the epistles, Paul talks about it. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes, Jesus was seen by Cephas, and he was seen by the twelve, and he was seen by 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul's essentially saying, these are my footnotes. You see, if you're writing a serious academic work today, especially historical work, you have to have footnotes. Why? Because your footnotes basically say, here, go find out what I'm saying is really true. Go look it up. Go ask. And see, Paul is writing his letter to the first Corinthians just 20 years after the resurrection. And he mentions the 12. You remember the 12, right? Those men who walked with Jesus, who knew he was the Messiah. And the resurrection galvanized their belief in him. They would never deny the fact of Jesus being alive. No one breaks. No one changes their story. They crucify Peter upside down. And he doesn't deny Jesus. 
James is stoned to death as an old man. Every one of these 12 dies a brutal and horrific death. Even John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the church tradition tells us that the leaders were so angry at his ministry that they tried to boil him alive. And he didn't die. And it freaked him out, and so they put him on an island. And all through it, friends, no one recants. No one. They continue to, say, to share the same story. Do you remember Charles Colson? He was once known as President Richard Nixon's hatchetman. Colson gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal and later was uh, convicted of his crime and then went to prison and was converted to Christ. And he served in prison ministry for years. And this is what he writes. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed it truth for 40 years and never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison, and they would not have endured it if they weren't true. And then he says, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep it alive for three weeks. And you're telling me 12 apostles could keep it alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So these disciples saw Jesus. These women saw the empty tomb that Mark mentions. And it proves the validity of what transpired. And that's why they're included. And friends, this, this, the Bible, the whole Bible pivots on this one day in Jerusalem. Everything in our history pivots on this morning. This moment right here. The central moment change the world. And right here, this, this man dressed in white preaches to the women. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And this moment, those, those words changes everything in the world. It's earth-shattering news. This moment changes the world. This moment changed my life. The day I understood that Jesus was really who he said he was, and that he did come back to life, changed my life forever. Christianity is firmly and completely based on this morning with these women finding an empty tomb. Everything pivots on this moment. And what happens now changes lives forever. In fact, millions and millions of lives are changed because of this morning with these women coming to an empty tune. And everything hangs on verses 3 through 6. See, in their minds, in verse 3, sin still reigns supreme on earth. Nothing had changed since Friday. For them, Jesus was still dead. Their movement was over. And they're now enemies of the state. And life is going to get worse for them here. But in a moment, in those breaths of shock and astonishment, a whole new world has dawned. New hope comes. New expectations were there. Life is going to be much different. And they had an assignment. It says in verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as I told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. See, their assignment was to go and tell. And that's our job, church. We come and see 
to learn from God's word and then we're to go and tell. And these women have an incredible job of going and telling the disciples that it's really true. All the bad stuff is coming undone. Jesus is really alive. He doesn't say, go and tell these cowardly, faithless, weak disciples that I'm alive. No, even in the announcement, there's incredible grace and mercy of God. But not just the disciples in general. He specifically calls on them to find and tell Peter. See, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, it says, and it was, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with him who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to, to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes, cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So why does this, this man single out Peter? And why does Peter then react this way when he hears the news? And I believe Peter felt like the biggest loser on that Sunday morning. Peter meant well on Thursday when Judas brought the men to arrest Jesus. Peter's the one that stood up and, and defended Jesus. He cut off the ear of the soldier But that showed that he didn't understand who Jesus really was and the power that he held. And Peter should have known about the kingdom of God. He had heard it preached to him for years. But when push comes to shove, what does Peter rely on? The sword. And aren't we just like Peter? When we say we're on the side of justice and peace and fairness, when when the challenge then arises, we feel the need to unleash the sword. And Jesus was saying over and over to Peter and to the rest of us that my kingdom is not of this world. And what do we do? We unleash the sword. We want this kingdom to be of this world. We want the world to be our kingdom. And Jesus says it's, it's not of this world. Don't you get it? I'm going to change how this world is going to work. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to truly love them. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. And I'm going to give up my power, my life. And weakness and poverty and suffering and rejection now will be at the top of my list. My revolution comes without a sword. And it will change the world forever. But Peter wasn't a quick learner. And if we're honest, we're more like him than we'd like to admit. Luke writes that when Jesus is arrested, Peter follows at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And he wept bitterly. And it's Sunday now. And those tears, I'm sure, haven't dried from his face. And all Peter can think about is that night. It's occupying his mind every turn. 
all of the thoughts turn those questions. Why didn't I tell him who I was? Why was I such a coward? What's wrong with me? Why do I continually screw up? And now Jesus is dead. He's gone. The, the moment when I needed to be faithful to him, I was concerned about myself. We're a lot like Peter. And we feel the weight of our sins and happily allow the burden to crush us. You see, if the women had raced back to find the disciples and only talked to the group, I'm sure Peter would have reasoned that he wasn't included. He messed up. He denied Jesus, just as Jesus said he would. That Jesus really wouldn't want him. I mean, why would Jesus want him? What what good would Peter bring to the situation? But Peter was invited. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. And praise the Lord for those two words. And Peter. He could come. Jesus wanted Peter to come. Anyone could come to Jesus. Friends, any one of you, no matter what you've done in your life, Jesus invites you. And perhaps you've turned in, you've, you've, you've flipped on this video and you're listening and you believe that you, and you are convinced that God wouldn't want you. And you say, Jeff, you don't understand what I've done or how I've lived. And Jesus says, you're invited. And Peter, this is God's call for you to come to him. This resurrection morning is for you, my friend, even you. Don't be fooled. God is calling even you. And Peter is our example. His mercy is more than our prior rejection of him. His mercy is stronger than our sins, our denials, our dismissal. And friends, if this is all true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then this changes everything for our life. If Jesus is God, if Jesus really did die on a Friday and come back to life on Sunday, then everything in this world changes. Friends, whether you know it or not, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have to worry about all the things that he told us throughout his life because it would all be a lie. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we must accept everything because his authority is absolute. You can't come to this point and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and walk away the same. You can't do it. It's impossible. This is life-changing news. This is life-altering news. You will no longer go in the same direction in your life. You will live differently because your life is different now. And I think we can fall into a trap of thinking of Jesus' authority in an abstract way that he conquered death. He has authority over death. He has authority over sin and Satan. And it's out there. It's outside of us. And we begin to think in an abstract way and never personally apply it to ourselves. But if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, about his authority over death, over sin, and Satan, then the unavoidable conclusion is he has authority over me and over you. There's no way to escape it. 
Jesus reigns supreme over everything. And you and I don't get a pass. And this is the truth, whether you believe it or not. Just like the grass is green, regardless if you believe it or not. Jesus is Lord over you, whether you accept it or not. And I've heard people say, I've decided to make Jesus Lord of my life, and I hate to break it to you, that's not in the Bible. You don't have a choice in the matter. Jesus is Lord over your life. Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is not whether or not Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you submit to him as Lord now or when it's too late? See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has life-altering effects for us. But not just us. As you see in the Bible, Jesus is alive and he shows himself and disciples are changed. They're transformed. Something happens to Peter. See, these, these days earlier, he's crushed as he's denied Jesus. And now, days later, he's fearlessly preaching about Jesus and explaining Jesus' death to the very people who killed him. From dashed hopes to death-defying faith. This, my friends, is the power of the gospel. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, we're glad that you've tuned in. But if you're not trusted in Christ, then you don't have any confidence of life after death. But today, on Easter, you can live in the reality of the resurrection. If you would turn from your life of sinful dependence on yourself and holy trust in Christ alone. The gospel is for you. Right now, God's law requires that you die for your sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the agonizing judgment, a curse from God, an enemy that separates those who die in sin from God forever. Then, friends, that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus Christ lived the perfectly obedient life to God that you and I couldn't. That is how he became righteous. And it's applied to us that Jesus died and suffered God's wrath and judgment in our place on the cross. That he took away our sin and guilt. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our behalf. That's what today is all about. I know God calls everyone to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus as their God and Savior in order to be resurrected one day from death to be forgiven of sin, made alive again through faith, and to live eternally with God forever. This is the good news. This is the point of Easter. This is why we exist as a church, to preach this gospel. And the best news is that all who trust in Jesus, even if they die, will live again in the power of the resurrection. And praise be to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, we are neither afraid to die or to live in this world. We are hope-filled children of the Almighty God. We are no longer enslaved to our sins. We are wrapped instead in the righteousness of Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are less pitied than anybody and more grateful than everybody. Thank you that today we can remember that everything sad will come untrue and that all things broken will be made new. And we acknowledge this morning because of your resurrection, you're already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray for those in our lives that do not recognize you as Lord. 
May you use us to give them this blessed hope that we may live in every day of every year in this hope. May you use us for your own glory. And we pray, Jesus, in your resurrected and reigning name. Amen.